Your mode of transport has a lot to do with how intimately you'll experience another culture while on vacation. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, German guide Daniela Wiedel tells us how bike touring works with tips for some of the best places to explore on two wheels. I bike a lot along the Danube River in, in Austria, biking up those rolling hills surrounded by vineyards. And in England, it's every person's right to hike the footpaths that crisscross the landscape from Cornwall to Scotland. The countryside is part of our heritage, and so it is about the rights of access to the countryside for all of us. Roy Nichols explains how the hiking culture of Britain will let you enjoy miles of pastoral landscapes and that famous British weather. And two veteran tour bus drivers share what it's like behind the wheel. There were some drivers that didn't like to do mountains, but I always loved it. You could actually see in front of you, like the switchbacks, like all the way up. Come along by bike, bus, or on foot. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're exploring how to get around Europe and maybe get some exercise at the same time, from two wheels to your own two feet. I've invited some of my European friends to join us with their suggestions for touring by bike, by bus, or just strolling at your own pace along the centuries-old trails of the English countryside. The journey really is our destination today on Travel with Rick Steves. There's lots of ways to explore Europe, and of course, one of them is by bike. Europe is catering to active vacations, and biking's more popular than ever. They've got well-developed bike routes and a culture of bike touring. You can day trip in and out of cities, you can go cross-country biking, you can go on your own, or you can take a tour. I want to learn more about taking a bike tour. So, Daniela Wiedel is joining us, and she's a Bavarian who's lived in France and Wales and has worked for Backroads, the bike company from California, taking groups all over Europe. Daniela, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Rick, for having me. Now, tell us just in a nutshell... How does a bike tour work? Um, A lot of the biking tours are one week long, six days long. And uh, there are several ways. Either you have a bike tour. Let's say you could start in the Czech Republic and end up in Vienna. Or um, you have bike tours that stay for five days in one place and then you do day trips out of this Let's talk about one one that starts here, ends there. It provides the bike. If you're not an expert biker. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so the average day, how many hours are you biking? How hard is it? It depends. Um, You have to choose a little bit your terrain where you want to bike. I mean, if you are not a very uh, well-trained biker, if you're more a casual biker, you should probably not choose a tour that rides in the Alps or in the Pyrenees. I'd like to bike along the Danube River. For example, that's a good way. If you're a casual biker along the rivers, that's always a good... It's flat along the rivers. If you take a river, you know it's going to be flat. Yes. And you can even choose to go downstream. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> Makes a difference. Yes, and hope for backwind. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> and, um, so you leave the hotel in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you carry your gear or does no, a car take it? Well, there are different ways, but normally um, you are only carry yourself and your bike. Most of the companies offer, even offer also bikes to you, so you don't have to bring your own bike, which is very convenient, of course. And your guides or your leaders will provide you with water bottles and a little snack. Nobody how it works is you get uh, directions and you follow those directions. So that doesn't mean that you follow one after the other your leader. You're actually okay. on your own. You have your own pace. And normally you have different options. Let's say you want to go for 30 miles. Then maybe some riders want to go for 50 miles and others for 70 miles. You have one leader that will also sweep, as we say, sweep the road and see that you are okay. If you have any issues, then the leader will help you. And another leader would be in a van, for example. So if you decide for whatever reason you cannot bike any further or you don't want to bike any further, then uh, this uh, van, they can pick you up and they ah. put your bike on the roof. So and, you get tired, uh, you can wimp out. If you get tired, if you can wimp out. <laughs> <laughs> say, yes. You just flag down the car. Yes. Okay, Absolutely. I've had enough of this. Absolutely. You can do that. And it's also important. They come by with water and they fill up your water bottles because, of course, it's always important. And if you move along, let's say the, uh, the Danube, let's say from Passau in Bavaria, you move down all the way to Vienna, um, your luggage will be transported also by the car. So the hotels are figured out, and depending on the uh, tour company, it could Mm -hmm. be as simple as camping or as fancy as luxurious hotels. Absolutely, yes, you have. Okay, now a typical day, would you have um, four or five hours of biking, or? Well, you probably come to four or five, or even more, maybe six hours. But it's split up normally. You bike in the morning for, let's say, three hours. The routes are put together so that you will arrive at around lunchtime in a place where you either get maybe a picnic provided, depending on the company, or you are in a place where you can get yourself some lunch. But it's not like a caravan of bikers, everybody staying together. No, 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 no. You leave in the morning when you like. 
Well, you want to arrive at a certain time. So you, you leave together, but then everyone has its own speed and you have the directions. You know where to go. Okay. If you're organized and paying attention, it's pretty straightforward. And the guide yeah. will have a little uh, meeting in the morning to explain what the plan Absolute. is for the day. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Daniela Wiedel about bike touring around Europe. Now, you've biked um, all over Europe. What are some classic great areas to bike? And I'm talking about a person who's not who's in reasonable shape, but not a serious biker. You want to be a casual biker, an easy tour, mm-hmm. uh, and you want to do some traveling at the same time. What are, what are some great ideas for uh, routes to uh, consider? Well, I think you have uh, a lot of casual biking and great facility of bike routes in Germany in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, also along the, the Rhine River or, for example, the Loire Valley. Beautiful mm. in France. Uh, it's the Loire Valley is flat, more or less. So it's now like, the Loire Valley, you would have chateaus also. So absolutely. would that be worked in as a guide? You would take the people to the castle mm-hmm. and make sure they tour it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So you would, for example, in the morning you bike twenty kilometers or fifteen miles, then you visit Chenonceau, one castle, nice. and uh, then you have maybe a picnic or you have lunch, and then you continue on riding in the afternoon for forty kilometers or how far you choose, and then you maybe visit another castle or not the other now, next day. Europe really knows its bike race. I mean, it's a big deal. When the when the Tour de France is on, all yeah. over Europe, everybody's just glued to the TV. Yeah. Yeah. And you've actually escorted some tours that follow in the wake yeah. of all these great bikers. Yeah. Tell us about that, the it, Tour de France tour. Mm-hmm, the Tour de France tour, and it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. We were able to follow uh, a stage or the, the Alpe d'Huez, the mountain trial. And uh, we know that Lance, for example, it takes him 32 minutes. And we did it too. It took us a little bit longer. It took us about two hours to get up the hill, but we did it. You have the fans already there and uh, you have this common experience. We, you struggle up this mountain and you make it, even though it takes you four times as long. <laughs> you know, if you're just a, a tourist and you want to see the Tour de France, mm-hmm. you can actually camp out mm-hmm. in different places anticipating the, the racers coming by. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. It's free. Um, you have to be there early. It's so popular that people come already days before. There's a huge amount of people that oh. line up and wait. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, but it's 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 really something very special. There is something special about it because my son, Andy, is so into biking. And uh, he went into the uh, mountains of France somewhere and camped out. It took the better part of a day. And he just saw, you know, Lance Armstrong streak by in, in just seconds. Mm-hmm. And he said it was well worth it. Yes, it was. Well, yes. What is it about the energy of that? Yeah, I think it's the energy of, of the that these riders have. But then also all those bike enthusiasts surrounding you also on the side of the street. And there's a carnival atmosphere. Absolutely. And you know, I've been in Paris twice at the finale of the Tour de France. And I thought, I'll never get close to it, but okay, I'm here. I'll go out there to the Champs-Élysées. And, mm-hmm. you know, the Champs-Élysées is like a mile long, and mm-hmm. they go back and forth, what, 10 or 12 yeah, times. Yeah. And I thought, well, I'll go there. It'll be pandemonium, but maybe I'll see something. Both times, it was so easy. I got within three people of the curb, and I could enjoy all of the racers going back and forth and got caught up in the energy right there in Paris without even planning in advance. Yeah, yeah, yeah you can. And it's an advantage to be tall, of course. That's true. <laughs> I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and I'm tall, and I enjoy the Tour de France finale probably easier than Daniela Vidal, who's uh, a bike tour guide giving us an insight into biking around Europe. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Nancy's on the phone from Wasco, Oregon. Nancy, thanks for your call. Thank you. Thoughts on biking in Europe? Yes, I've done quite a lot of biking, uh, both self-supported and with tour companies. So I'm looking for something more way off the beaten path, maybe Georgia, Albania, Slovenia, Romania. Any ideas? That's a wonderful idea. One thing I think uh, you should be aware of is that um, the facilities of bike paths in those countries are not like you find it in France or in Germany. Um, so you have to be ready to bike on the road, which is not an issue because in Europe the drivers are used to bikers on the road. But it's more a question of you yourself if you want to do that. And there's a lot of trucks on the roads in Europe, mm-hmm. and that can be a little unnerving for a lot of bikers mm-hmm. if they're not experienced. Mm-hmm. You know, Nancy, when I think about, uh, of course, biking through Albania or Bulgaria would be just fascinating. And anywhere you bike, I think you gain the respect of the local people. Mm-hmm. Very much, because you have this immediate contact, because you, you ride through little villages and you, you are not as fast as in a car. So you, you're slow, you stop, or you maybe have to refill your bottle if you do it uh, on your own. These are the intimate glimpses of those cultures. And when you go to a place like Georgia or Albania or Bulgaria, there's not a lot of leaning towers and Eiffel Towers and you know famous sites, but there's wonderful, rich cultural experiences. Mm-hmm. And I would say you'll find more of those per mile and uh, hour from a bike than from a car. Yes, yes, absolutely. 
It's yeah. a wonderful way to travel. I just love it. And you, you deal with the local people when you stop and buy a snack. And isn't it you get really to know the, the countryside because you feel every rolling hill in your legs. You really know it is a little bit uphill in yeah. Bulgaria or in Albania. Yeah. It's quite the rolling hill country. <laughs> and you smell the fresh cat hay yes. and yes. Uh, hear the birds. It's wonderful. Oh, good. Nancy, yes. in your biking experience in Europe, have you enjoyed the biking infrastructure, trails and paved lanes made for bikers? Yes, along the Danube, I did one trip from uh, Munich, Germany, actually, all the way to Bratislava. Oh, good um, for you. Um, I love that whole biking community. Uh, it's sort of a culture along the Danube. They've got that, what's called the Radlerweg? Yes. yes. Radlerweg. <laughs> it's wonderful, and people are just, just wonderful. Now, Nancy, did you ever take your bike onto the train to make a particular shortcut? or? or oh, a... yes, and on the ferry. That's another nice thing about going along the Danube is... Oh, it gets kind of boring sometimes, and so you put your bike on the ferry and get off at the next stop. Or And you can visit then sites as Melk, which are the, yes. the oh, Abbey, yes. for Milk. example, or Dürnstein, I'm sure you were there. And yes, yes. Wonderful sites along the Danube. Nancy, thanks for your call. Thank you. I'm speaking with Daniela Wiedel. We're talking about biking around Europe. Uh, that Radlerweg. That Radler, is that the word for bicycle? Radler is the word for bicycle, but also it can be actually the name for a drink we have. That's uh, right, because in, in the beer hall you can go get a Radler. Absolutely. And Which a Radler, what it is, is uh, half uh, of Sprite or 7-Up, how you call it, and half a uh, lager beer. So it's literally and the biker. It's the biker. What you drink is a biker. And it allows you that, you know, you didn't have a whole mass or a whole liter of beer, but you only had half a liter. So it allows you to hop on your bike afterwards and to ride along the Radlerweg without falling off. <laughs> so it's at, a, at a beer garden, it's sometimes hard to get less than one liter, about a mm -hmm. quart, a big, huge mm -hmm. mug. So rather than getting a smaller mug, you can at least have it half filled with 7-Up. Yeah, half filled 7-Up Radler. So the yeah. biker might be wise to order a yes. biker. Yes, particularly. Yep. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's a big leap to go from driving a car to pedaling a bike. And a lot of times I drive by some biker and I think, boy, they're working hard. But I look at the expression on their face when they get to the summit and when they get back to the hotel or something, and they've had a, a lovely day. For those of us who've never experienced the, the joys of biking, share with us one moment where you know biking is the way to travel. Hmm. Well, for me, it's... There are, are those moments, and one particular moment for me I joined very much is I, I bike a lot along the Danube River in, in Austria. So, for example, in the area of Wachau, the wine-growing area on the Danube, and I see myself biking up those rolling hills and being surrounded by vineyards, and then arriving in the late afternoon at 5 o'clock, and you have beautiful light surrounding you, and after a hard-working day full with smells and, and tastes of the area, to sit down and actually then enjoy a wonderful glass of Wachau um, white wine uh, and looking at the Danube and seeing my bike standing there. I think that's that's a, a wonderful way of traveling and uh, it's it's uh, something very, very unique and it's a wonderful, rewarding feeling in the evening, yeah. So you're exercising, your body's feeling good, you're surrounded by the culture and the nature, you're connecting with the people yeah. and you're doing it on two wheels. Yes, that's a wonderful way, yeah. Daniela Wiedel, danke schön for helping us about bitte, biking in Europe. Bitte schön, danke. For us, it is okay to talk to the bus driver. And up next, we'll see what the view's like from the driver's seat. Then later, we'll consider enjoying the British countryside on foot, enjoying that wonderful network of public pathways like the English do. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Buenos días desde Madrid. Mi nombre es Federico García y viajo con Rick Steves. I said in Spanish, Good day from Madrid. My name is Federico García and I travel with Rick Steves. I'm going to say it again in Spanish. 
Buenos días desde Madrid. Mi nombre es Federico García. Y viajo con Rick Steves. For 25 years as a tour guide in Europe, one of my great joys was toasting our bus driver after a smooth and safe and successful tour. Bus drivers, I really consider the unsung heroes of touring abroad, and I want to learn more about that. Today, I'm joined by Fernando Mengi and Dimi Rigas, two friends of mine who are bus drivers in Europe. Ferdi and Dimi, thanks for joining us. Hi, Rick. Welcome. Hi. Nice to Now, meet you. Now, Dimi, you're, you're Greek-Belgian. Yes. Um, both my parents are Greek, but I'm born and raised in Belgium. And Ferdi, you're Italian-Belgian. Italian-Belgian. Dad Italian, full sight. My mom, full Belgian. Born and raised in Belgium. Europe is getting very mixed up. It's, <laughs> it's tricky for Americans to get our heads around this. It's for us sometimes confusing. <laughs> and what's interesting to me is how the regional pride is still there, and you've still got people born and raised all over the place. Of with, course, it's yeah. just a big mix, but yeah. still there's a resilience there, isn't there? Yeah, we take advantage of the best part of it. You know, That's a good way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When, I, when I'm in Greece, or well, I feel Greek when that yeah. comes to me. And then if it's in Belgium, I do it that way. Yeah. Well, in Italy, I'm Italian. Now, you guys have driven professionally all over Europe, and... Whether you're driving a big bus or just a hot car or just an, a simple car, the joys of driving are really a great part of travel. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. When you think about uh, driving around Europe, where do you find that the roads are best engineered, Dimi? Well, it used to be Germany, but I would say now it's France. Yeah, France improved a lot, uh, maybe because also uh, you, you have to pay for the roads there. You know, ah. see, in Germany, now we don't pay anymore. But the Autobahn is toll-free. Yes. In Germany and in France, you have a toll. And yes. you're, you're saying with that revenue, they're able to invest I, in I, I imagine that because of that, yes. And Ferdi, where, where do you think the best engineered roads are? Well, I, I have to agree totally with Demi. It's, it's, it's Germany at first. I mean, it, you know, I'm talking about mm -hmm. 10, maybe 15 years ago. And now it's France. It's, I've just been in France last year. I did a private trip. You know, vacation was just wonderful. If, how does roads improve? And when you cross a border, think of all the borders you've crossed. Where is the most, the biggest change in quality of roads from great to not from so great? country to country. Because yeah. I, I feel that when you drive out of Germany and into Slovenia or... Okay, I would, I would go that way. I mean, if you, go, you stay in the West, Austria, Civil, yeah. yeah. I mean, Austria is also still a, a great way... Actually, Austria, Germany to Austria, I feel a difference. Yeah, yes, you can. You do. Everybody yeah. quite built amazing. their own... Uh, in, in Germany, you feel this mighty road system. Yeah. And then you cross into Austria, and immediately it's, it's a little more humble. And yes. another country I don't want to overlook is Holland. Yes. They have a great, they great, great condition system. of uh, of roads. Exactly. It's a little too dense, but I mean that's nothing. And they if can you do about you it. drive all over Europe, what do you look forward to as one of the most uh, just beautiful joy rides? Mountains, mountains. Yes, oh, yeah, Mountain. me too. I love. I mean, there were ride. there were some drivers that didn't like to do mountains, but I always loved it. So if there's a big tunnel or switchbacks over the pass, switchbacks, switchbacks, anytime. Oh, yeah. <laughs> is that yeah. right? Yes, we are one of the few. I mean, we yeah. we both worked in the same company and. You know, when the guides always want to work with us, say, take Demi or Ferdi because they always yeah. want to do the passes. You know, I, uh, I love that. Why would you go into a tunnel if you yeah, can't have those anything. views? I mean, yeah, seriously. beautiful. Now, Switzerland is spending a lot of money to make these tunnels. And yeah. uh, I think actually a lot of communities would rather have the, uh, the truck traffic and the bus traffic go underground and so on. Yeah. But you do have this option always to go over the mountains. Yes, you do. Remember in the old days when we did the Gotthard Tunnel oh, in Switzerland? Yes. We went over it. We if went the, over if it. it was clear, went over it. it it's like a... It's a wide yeah. road. It's unbelievable how easy it is to go over with your, you know, uh, right. 45 uh, feet there, footer. You, I don't know if you remember, there was this rock fell down just before the Gotthard Tunnel. Um, and they closed down that road. We had to go around, actually, on one of our tours. to Go the, over uh, the Gotthard Tunnel. The, and it was a nothing? Pass, and that was like... Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, that one. Gosh, you could actually see in front of you like a wall, and you could see the switchbacks like... Yeah. All the way up. <laughs> and as uh, a driver, you said, and let that me was add a challenge. It's a challenge. It's a yes. challenge. The Gotthard Pass, uh, where is that exactly? That's uh, in Switzerland when you cross the Italian border. It's about a two-hour drive from there. So, so it's... Uh, Bellinzona, uh, you know, that's... North the, of Milano, you, you, yeah, you, you, you go leave the up. Mediterranean yeah. world. And then, uh, what is it, 10, 12 miles? The tunnel is about, kilometers. 17 about 10 kilometers. Miles. So yeah. 10 miles. Yeah. And then you come out and you feel like yodeling. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, because you're on the Italian side of Switzerland, you come out on the German-speaking. You've, exactly. you've crossed the cultural divide. Yes. But not only that, also the weather is different. Oh, gosh. If, yeah. if on one Many side times. it's raining, and most likely you will have on the other side the sun is shining. You know, it's, to me, it's like everything's different. You've got different culture, different language, yes, different yeah. exuberance. And then you go, uh, when you're traveling through Switzerland, of course, you're traveling through the most expensive road system, I think, yes. per mile. Yes, we do. For the buses, it's, it's a system. They created a system where you have to pay, like, for 10 days. It's a 10-day 
like a chart. A pass. And every time you you are spending one day, you have to mark that, and they check you for that. And it's well, countries are countries don't like to be a thoroughfare. Yes, I mean, uh, Austria is right. always complaining about all the industry from Germany going right across Austria down to Italy yeah. without leaving a penny. Well, but they do yeah. pay a lot of taxes. Now they the have roads. to pay the taxes. Yeah. That's oh, yeah. the point. Yeah. yeah. Every country has a reputation for its drivers. Yes. What? And I'm not <laughs> saying you have to agree with it, but who's most famous for being good drivers? I would uh, say at one time I think the Germans were high ranked for me. Yeah. Yeah. But they're losing it a little bit. I mean, I, I mean, I live very close to the German border, and they they kind of don't have that that. Because they used anymore. to be, they used to be very good. And now they used to be very good. They pull on their gloves and they yeah, they, yeah, right. they and they were respectful. Now yeah. they don't. They're not respectful. So that's you have to understand that the the traffic also has grown. In, I would say Scandinavian drivers. Scandinavian drivers yeah. are very polite and very you know aware of what they're doing. I mean, I, I like those. Yeah, yeah. In Norway, I think it's one of the most dangerous countries to drive just because it's so scenic. Yes. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> you don't I pay cannot attention. keep my eyes on the road in Norway. <laughs> and because of the animals on the street. And you can hit a moose. That's a big one. Of all the frustrations you have in getting out of cities and getting into cities with traffic, what's the worst? I would say the traffic is the worst in big cities. I would say Italy for sure, Rome. Getting out of Rome. I remember oh that was always gosh. a challenge Paris, to get out of Rome. Paris. Oh, Traffic-wise, I would say Paris. Traffic-wise. But, but it also depends how well do you know exactly. the city. I remember my first time I was... I had to go to Paris with the, with the school, and, and the guy said, do you know Paris? So this is my first trip. And the guy said, this is my first trip, too. Ah. So I was sweating. Well, in Paris, wouldn't the rule be get to the periphery as quickly as you if can? If you want to, yeah. And then I, I, circle around the city yeah, to yeah, your best, yeah. your direction. But even now, even now these days, if you use the periphery, you lose a lot of time. I mean, oh, they, have, so they have those signs on the top where you can say, okay, if you want to go from one gate to another gate, it will take you that much of time. But that not really necessary really is true. So they're know? trying to tell you how slow the traffic is exactly, by these times. Yes. Oh, it's, it's, very, it's very intense. I remember London was just like nothing but little tiny roads. There was no freeway uh, yeah. opportunity to get out of yeah. London. That was I will agree with that. Yeah. Well, London's the biggest city. I remember the first time I drove to London and said, this, this city never ends. Yeah. I mean, you started <laughs> yeah. and you didn't know where it ends. But it's, <laughs> true. It's, it's not something like uh, you, you, you get off the highway and from the highway to the, to the ring road or something and then into the city. No, you actually drive through the suburbs. And, uh, and uh, that's quite interesting. It's and, interesting, but, but there's no, you never get to a big road. It's no, all these no, little roads no, forever yeah. in London. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're driving around Europe with two great bus drivers, Ferdinando Mengi, Italian-Belgian, and Dimi Rigas, a Greek-Belgian. <laughs> now, I want to talk about driving a big bus, or you guys call it a coach, don't you? Yes, I mean, we do. Bus drivers are, what's the difference between well, a bus and a coach? Well, we're proud of our vehicle where we drive in. You know? Yeah. So a bus for us is something that you drive every day from home to work, which is a city bus, basically. Ah. A coach is something with more luxury. Sophisticated. Uh, sophisticated, yeah. exactly. We got televisions, we got all Toilet, kinds of sound bar, systems. You know. and, now, coaches yeah, have changed a lot in the oh, last, yeah, the last yeah, 20 years. Enormous. I mean, it's unbelievable. I actually, I, I'd rather drive with a bus than with a car, to be honest. Because, you know, it's actually it, easier. It's smoother. <laughs> and you got, yeah, you got that yeah. power. You know? Tell me more about the technological improvements of a, well, of a coach for, these days. For one, I mean, uh, suspension. You know, mm -hmm. the suspension is, is, you don't feel nothing on the it's road. Air I mean, it's, it's, it's air suspension. It's so smooth suspension. to drive it. And plus, when I remember when my first bus had like 250 horsepower, now they up with 600 horsepower. It's just a, a yeah exactly. It's so smooth. To and go over the mountains, we used to uh, gear down, gear down, gear down. That was down. work. That, that was work. work. <laughs> no, actually, actually <laughs> physical, that was just physical work. <laughs> physical work. Now automatic. you guys are just out. Yeah, it's semi-automatic. And those days were gear shifting yeah. and you're double clutching and all that stuff. Oh, it's that's just an gone. adventure. That's, that's all that's, gone. Yeah. Now, the European Union is famous for regulations. Yes. I think the European Union oh, loves yeah. to regulate. And a lot of it is for good reason, for safety and to keep drivers from being tired and so on. What are the hour limits and driving limits put on drivers now, Dimi? Well, okay, a coach driver can drive nine hours a day maximum. There's only two days a week he can actually drive 10 hours, but that's an exception because then he had to take more time after that, so more free time. After 12 days, he needs actually 48 hours to be stopped, which is sometimes a problem when you do tours, you know. So 48 hours of absolutely no driving, no driving every 12 days. Yes. Uh, Ferdi, when you have nine hours you can drive in a day, you couldn't drive two hours at 6 o'clock in the morning and two hours at 10 o'clock at night? Or, or is no, there a concern about that? No, it doesn't work that, that way. Uh, yeah. Because they don't, they don't want you no. working over a long stretch either, right? Yes, because if you're going to do two hours in the morning and two hours at, at night or after midnight, that doesn't, that, that, it goes well, to your rest. I think the you problem there comes to, uh, if you do that, 
you can only work 15 hours a day. Mm-hmm. So I'm not talking about Oh, driving. that's what my question was. A 15-hour mm-hmm. stretch. Yes. Yeah. So from stretch. 7 until midnight. rest every four okay, hours. Okay, that's not you need too to have a time off. So. Now, you have a disc in your driving wheel yeah. still. Is that how you Well, can... that's another new thing of the technology we have. We don't use the discs anymore. You don't? New no. buses have a digital Chip speedometer, we call that. So you put your car, it's like a credit card. You put it in there and it registers everything. It's got like a credit card and it's got a chip on it. And even the police, when they stop you, they ask for that card and they have a, a, a device where they put your card and their device and it reads everything, everything that you've been, you know, days ago, where you driven, how fast you were driving, all that stuff. They can so actually find you yeah. when you were speeding five or six days ago. It doesn't matter how long ago it is. Yeah. Has been wow. That's technology yes. nowadays. Wow. So yeah. they Scary. there's no way to there's fudge no way on the to, rules. No. If the speed limit is 120 kilometers an hour, 100, 100, 100 kilometers an hour on a motorway, is that strict or can you fudge on that a little bit? No, no they have a governor. They have, have a governor. Yeah, yeah. yeah so the buses no, use no more. No way you can put the pedal to the metal So what is the speed limit for cars on the autobahn? In Belgium, it's 120. In Germany, it's 130. So that's not everywhere. 70, 75 miles an hour. Yeah, 70 to 80 miles an hour. And even in Germany, the cars have essentially no speed limit on the freeway. No, the but they do. still slowly, because it was a big uproar when they came out with that 130, uh, 130 kilometer Fix. speed limit. And, what, yeah, and they, they would say they don't want it. But now what they do, they put speed limits up everywhere on the road. Yeah. And yeah. slowly, so they Germany's see Germany starting to yeah, come to the need yeah, traffic they have limits. to. It, it's the intensity of the traffic. There's too I, much traffic. I believe that the, the speed limit is 130 unless indicated, you know. And also, you know, you lose your insurance. If you, for example, make an accident yeah, beyond 130, oh, yeah. the, the insurance would just say, okay, you pay it yourself. Now, you guys have driven your coaches millions of kilometers, I would imagine. I notice a lot of bus drivers do not like to wear seatbelts, just as a sort of a, what, what's the psychology it's a habit, there? I think, I think it's I mean. a habit and it's a stupid thing, actually. But is it a matter of pride? Like, I'm a safe driver and I, I should prove that by not well, wearing I wouldn't say directly or, that. I don't, so. I, I don't think so. It's, it's we, we've been driving buses you know, way back in time and we never had the, 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 the seatbelt. Uh, it's a funny thing that happened. Even if they stop you, you know, police would never, I mean, no, find a driver, yeah. which is so interesting. Because you can you can get a, stopped by the police oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. in a car, yes. not wearing a yeah. seatbelt, but, but that's bus, not enforced for coach drivers. Not, no. I have not, not, not seen not it. Yet, not yet. Interesting. It will come, but... Now, the alcohol restrictions are oh, strictly yeah, enforced. Yes. Yeah. Zero tolerance. Non, Absolutely n- zero. Non-tolerance. In fact, there's a new beer in Spain called Zero because the, quote, non-alcoholic mm-hmm. beer no alcohol. has a little alcohol a little in bit, it. yes, yes. It's ah, still dangerous. So drivers, I mean, you can't get drunk, really, on non-alcoholic alcoholic beer, no, but it no, technically no. it's got some alcohol in it. So for drivers now, a very popular beer is called Sin. Ah, Sin alcohol. Sin, but that yeah, is sin. Zero, zero alcohol. Zero alcohol. In other words, it's really strict for drinking and so driving. So it's good for oh, yeah. drivers. You can drink it. You can drink <laughs> it. <laughs> yes. Well, but you have to. I mean, again, with the with the intense traffic that's been going on, I mean, you have to. I and mean, Belgium is changing its laws. Under 25 is zero tolerance as yes, well. yes. You know, for the young people, and I, I totally because there's I, a lot of drinking in Europe, and yeah, uh, still, you know, alcohol is celebrated, and there's a lot of drunken driving deaths. So it's got to mm-hmm. be strictly enforced. You know, I know that here in the states, they always thought you know have to be 21 to get do the beer law or whatever. Uh, we getting there. We are getting there. We getting there, especially I mean, in weekends. Weekends are very strict in weekends. What kids are doing, and even the insurances are. Some insurance will say you cannot drive on weekends, which yeah. is quite... Yeah. Some, yeah. some young people have insurance policies that say yes. you can, yeah, even if you none. don't drink, you yeah. just kids can't drive yeah. on weekends. And yeah. you cannot buy drink anymore, like you have to be 18 and you have to show ID. That would never happen. I remember no. as a kid going to a store uh, for my uncle. He was a kind of a drinker and I was seven years old getting a six-pack of beer. Oh yeah, no problem. That's impossible anymore. No. You can't do that anymore. We're changing. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Ferdinando Mengi and Dimi Rikas, and we're talking about uh, coach driving in Europe, bus driving. And these guys have both driven professionally with tour groups. And Dimi, when you deal with tour groups and you're traveling around Europe, what is something that the, the traveler, the American tourist, should know to really understand the, the struggles and the frustrations of a bus driver? Well, traffic, for one. I mean, traffic is, is, is tremendous in, in, in Europe, and it's getting even worse in the cities. People are very aggressive. But, I mean, what is frustrating to you with dealing with the people? Oh, with people in the bus, yeah, you mean? Yeah. How, uh, can, pe- how can you be happier with your tourists? I would say noise, uh, throwing things around, especially, I mean, in kids now. Kids is... is, is because really, your bus really, is your is your place. I mean, you know, this is the house, coach, the home house. for the bus driver, because they would spend months in that bus. 
So you can imagine that you want to keep it clean. So if somebody's going to put their ice cream cone in an ashtray. Oh, they're that's, not entering not the nice ice, ice cream cones. Not anymore. <laughs> Nobody goes on Dimmy's bus. Nothing that drips. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing that drips. Ferdinando, how can a tourist keep you happy on the bus? Well, again, I'm I'm with Dimmy there. I mean, the, this, this is the home of a bus driver, and uh, keep it clean. Respect the driver. Uh, respect if there are any problems in the city. And again, I have to emphasize what he says. If you go to a city, sometimes you cannot drop off people right there. And sometimes you have people, they complain, why can you not drop us off? Now we have to walk four blocks or some of that. But these are restrictions. Yeah. And, 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 you know, more people and have to be on board with you, and that makes it easy. That, for me, would be... And what's your challenge with a tour, a tour manager? Because tour guides have to manage their drivers well, work together well. Well, you do have some tour managers. They ask, really, things that you cannot do. Believe me, uh, I've been there and done that. Things uh, that are illegal for the bus. Well, maybe not illegal, but dangerous sometimes. Dangerous. What's yeah, an yeah. example that a um, tour manager would want? Well, sometimes you have to drive backwards to get out of that. <laughs> For example, <laughs> you can't drive backwards. no, no, seriously. I mean, it happened I'm, I'm several times. Uh, we are able to do it, but I think why risk? We, we never. This is one thing that yeah. we will never do as you a driver. You cannot risk never your, your take coach a risk. or the safety for the people. Exactly. Yeah. Or make a U.E. on the Champs Elysees because we went all the way too far. It's not dangerous, <laughs> but it's something that the police would not like. If you have like a 48-footer bus making a UE. Have you ever been in a very small road and it gets oh, smaller gosh, and yes. smaller and then some stupid guy has left his little car in front of you and you're stuck? Yes. I've been once in a city and I thought it was in Germany somewhere and we had to move the terrace because I was the guy told me that I could drive in there. I was off the road. I was on a pedestrian zone and they had to move all the terraces everywhere. All the little uh, uh, the, the, the little people had to pick up their and beers and put the tables on the side and I could back out again. Can you I believe I was on that? a bus where we had to get the guys out and physically move a car. Oh, out of oh the we way. have done that in, in Italy we many times. We have done that several times. Many, in Rome for sure. I actually for was sure. driving one of the American uh, ministers in Brussels and they were building the, the European uh, buildings and there were still cars parked wrong. So the bodybuilders or the, the, the security people got out of the bus all the cars moved them out the side, and we had to go through it. I mean, really, this physically, is this guys picking up the cars. Yeah, 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 oh, yeah. How many strong tourists does it take to move a normal car? I would say six. Six men yeah. can move a car. If you go in Italy, you have two because of those two. Fiat Five. <laughs> two <laughs> men move a car. <laughs> Dimi Rigas and Ferdi Mangi, thank you very much for sharing with us a little insight into a very important part of any group traveler's uh, European experience: enjoying and appreciating your coach. Thank you. Glad well, to be you're here. You're welcome. Our friend and guide from Southern England, Roy Nichols, is back with us in just a moment. Roy has tips for taking part in the British tradition of a brisk hike or a leisurely ramble on the network of age-old pathways that crisscross the British countryside. 877-333-RICK. That's our phone number, and you can post your own stories of how biking, hiking, or driving around Europe made your trip a success or not. Tell us about your own travels in the radio section of ricksteves.com. You know, people complain about the weather in England, but I actually like being immersed in the countryside, and that includes rain on my cheeks, thankful for a good parka, sheep seeming to sleep standing at attention in the drizzle, the wet, worn wood of a swinging gate as I walk from one farmstead to the next. I see a creamstone village with a medieval church that's kind of standing triumphantly upon what probably was a pagan holy site, and then ahead I find a warm pub, a welcoming pub, and I step inside, my glasses fog up, and I take off my glasses and I see a gregarious man behind the bar who pulls me a pint. And in moments I'm immersed in good conversation with new English friends, I'm enjoying the English countryside. I'm joined today by Roy Nichols, who for 30 years has led Americans around the English countryside, and we're going to talk about walking across England. Thanks for joining us, Roy. It's a pleasure, Ray. Now, I tried to paint a picture there of sort of the intimate joy of enjoying a, a lush and intimate and drizzly afternoon in the English countryside. Did that resonate with you at all? Oh, it certainly does, because most of my walking is spent in the rain. 
England is a rainy country or Britain is a rainy country and you have to accept this. But as you say, it's part of the job. It's soft weather, isn't it? Exactly. There are no extremes of temperature in Britain. There's no bad weather, just inappropriate just, clothing. Exactly. <laughs> and as long as you're prepared for the weather, you'll still enjoy your walking regardless of the type of weather. And it makes that pub even more welcoming and cosy. Exactly. Whether it's summertime and it's a hot day or during rainy periods or the cold of a winter's day, to get into a pub at the end of the day or at lunchtime, have a pint, have a meal, it's bliss on earth. I love a pub. And maybe that's one reason why, according to the surveys and so on, three-quarters of British people consider themselves walkers. It's the most popular outdoor activity in Great Britain. It is. And, and whether you're walking just to the pub for a quiet drink on a Sunday afternoon or whether you're doing one of the serious trails, walking many miles a day... Walking is a great institution. And there are serious trails that are well-organized that'll take you literally all the way across England. Exactly. There are trails in every part of the British Isles, whether it's one running to north to south, like the Pennine Way, whether it's one of the coastal walks, like the southwest coastal footpath that goes 500 miles around the counties of Somerset, Dorset and Cornwall, or whether you're walking one of the local trails. What's the longest from tip to tip, from Land's End to John O'Groats? It's about 800 miles. That's an unofficial footpath, and there isn't actually a designated route, but it's a route that many people take to do charitable runs or cycles or drives. Yeah. Now, that is literally from Land's End, that's the southwest tip of Cornwall, all the way up to the the very northeast point on the British mainland called John O'Groats. John O'Groats. It's a little settlement. 800 miles. 800 miles. A little bit more, but yeah. 800 miles. Now, it's nothing new. There's a Ramblers Association that uh, has really been a, a group of hikers that appreciate this sort of right, a basic right that people have to walk across the countryside in England. Uh, it was founded way back in the 1930s. Exactly. Now, walking, as we've said, has been a passion of the, the British for a long time. By the 1930s, much of the land being owned by great landowners was denied or access was denied to these areas. And what the Ramblers Association was trying to do was establish the right of access to these areas. So during the Industrial Revolution, more and more fences, more and more stay-out signs. Exactly. And the people who really had that right, all the way back to medieval times when you had commons lands or whatever, said, no, this is open to people to walk through. You can own the land, but you can't fence it off. And they organized in the Ramblers Association. Today, there's, what, 800 groups, 140,000 members, and they are still asserting the right of the people to walk. As a matter of fact, back in the 30s, they, they organized an actual a mass event trespass. Exactly. A mass trespass. There's a place in the Peak District called Kinder Scout, and I think that was the first place where they actually organized one of these mass trespasses. So, what is a mass trespass? Where thousands of people essentially are, they are breaking the law of the land against the law of trespass, where they walked across land that was privately owned to establish the right to walk. And although there were prosecutions at the time, eventually it did lead to the establishment of the Peak District National Park or helped to That's quite contribute. heroic, really. It is. It is about the rights of access to the countryside for all of us. Now, it's no dispute of private ownership by any means, but the countryside is part of our heritage. It's, it's a recreation that, as we said, most people enjoy. And so access to the countryside is important. So as travelers, when we visit England, we can get into this sort of enthusiasm and appreciation for walking through the countryside. And we can be thankful for the Ramblers Association, because when we get to England, we find it's got to be one of the most walker-friendly countries in the world. The trails are well-groomed, well-marked. There are hundreds of thousands of miles of public footpaths in the countryside now. These, as we've said, might be the long-distance trails, but there are thousands and thousands of little footpaths that go from village to village, from house to house. These were established in medieval times or from medieval times. And so there is nowhere in, in the countryside where you can't walk. And you've got these wonderful characteristic signposts. Oh, yeah, the beautiful signposts. There are little uh, little wooden signs, usually sometimes cast iron, that point to the next village, giving you the destination. I've got so many photographs of these. I'm just a sucker for these signs, these beautiful little hand-carved And in fact, one thing almost. you do look for is the little acorn. What is that? Um, where you've got a long-distance footpath, the acorn is the designated symbol indicating long-distance footpath. Of the route is that right? Of and is that uh, associated with the Ramblers Association? No, it's something done by sort of people like the National Parks. And, okay. and there are various other signs as well. When you've got local trains, they'll have a little symbol indicating the extent or the direction of the footpath. England has a passion for food that does not make you thin. And there's well, a lot of fat people in England, and I would think that there'd be a sort of an enthusiasm for getting out there and walking it Exactly, off. partly because of the sort of the background of the food type, but also because of modern life. Um, and we just aren't as active as our ancestors used to be. 
and obesity is a problem everywhere in the Western world, uh, walking is really this answer to it. Now, when you're in England, you've got a chance to go to all sorts of different sort of terrains, and it's confusing to me. You've got commons, you've got moorlands, heaths, downlands. What do these things mean? Much of it is all really different names for different types of upland. Downs is an old Anglo-Saxon word meaning a hill. You find it down in the south and southeast of England. Downs is a hill? Yes, an old Saxon word it's meaning counterintuitive. hill. Counterintuitive. So you go up the down. You go up the down. I'm going to go up the down. Well, south can... Downs. South Downs. That's the one of my North favorite Downs, parts of England. The North Downs or the Wiltshire Downs. And in fact, you can go down the down as well. Down the down. What about moorlands? Moorlands are these traditional heathy, sort of heathery type countryside. Nice where... place for sheep and goats. Exactly. But it's some of the most um, accessible, open, undeveloped, unspoiled parts of, of Britain. Now, there's like, what, 10 national parks in England? Or exactly. Of these, uh, ranging moorlands? from uh, the Northumberland National Park in the northeast down through the Lake District, down through the Yorkshire Moors, the Yorkshire Dales, down to the South Downs. And I think one of the most recent is the South Downs and the New Forest. That's a national park, South Downs? Yeah, it is. Just Good. this, I think it came into being this last year. Beautiful. I love the South Downs. That should be protected as a national park. That's the area around Brighton, from, sort of, south of Exactly, London. from Eastbourne right through across to the west in Winchester. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're walking across England with Roy Nichols, who's been doing that for uh, a long time. All my life. All your life. <laughs> Roy, what is a heath? A heath is a very sort of generic term for a sandy area. Uh, you'll find a lot of it in, in the southeast of England. Would it be near the coast? Not always, because there are parts of, for instance, East Anglia, which are heathland. Because you've got these links in Ireland for golfers? Right? Well, a golf course that is by the coast is by designation a lynx. Is that unique to Ireland or Scotland also, do you know? Well, I, I think it comes from the fact that one of the first golf courses was St. Andrews in the northeast of Scotland, of course, was on the coast. And because of the sandy coastal kind of ground. Exactly, and many kind of, of the, sort of the traps and the bunkers and things, of oh, course, okay. were, were sand. Beautiful sand golfing area, and of course, golfing born in Scotland and very exactly. popular to this day. And finally, what is a commons? A commons was an area of land that was once upon a time, really in from medieval times, was actually owned by the community. Everybody had access to graze their animals on it, collect firewood, all of this sort of thing. So this does go back to the medieval times. The feudal system. It the was feudal a, system. It was, it was a resource for the village or the town. Sadly, much of this was taken away in the 17th and 18th centuries by what they called the enclosures, where land was parceled up and sold off. So it was a way that poor landless people would have a place to graze their flocks exactly. and, and sustain they, they themselves. Exactly. They were farmers by, by and default. to this day, you've got these commons that are sort of mystical um, communal parklands, it seems like, where uh, there's not a lot of development. Is there not a lot of development there because it's just miserable land and sparse population or because of government protection? Well, it, it's a mixture of all of them. I mean, by, you know, historically, many of these, much of this land was bad farming land or not very good as marginal land. And so there wasn't any pressure on it to turn it into agricultural land. But also it is protected or much of it is protected these days from development. You know, English people are quite good at organizing to protect things. And this is part of the role of the Ramblers Association, but you're protecting your coastline so people can have access to it. Exactly. The National Trust is trying to, I think it's called Operation Neptune. They're trying to buy up more and more of the English coastline. And I think they've got something like 3,000 miles of it or something. That's a beautiful thing. And you've got these ancient footpaths that are recognized now, and they're just a fragile remnant of what they were, but they still are recognized and being preserved. Yes. One of the most famous is the Ridgeway, which runs from close to Avebury in, in uh, Wiltshire, right through uh, the northeast. It goes about 150 miles, and it's thought to be one of the great prehistoric trackways. Wow. These were trackways used thousands of years ago by our ancestors to move around the countryside. Literally thousands of years ago, centuries oh, before Christ. Probably from Mesolithic times, wow. because they're often run along sort of high land, ridges and all that sort of thing, crossing river valleys at convenient places. So they would have been traditional routes of movement. There's an other ancient footpath uh, that sort of historically divides England from Wales, right? Offa's Dyke? Offa's Dyke. Um, Offa or Offa's Dyke is named after an early Saxon king called King Offa, one of the last pagan kings of the Kingdom of Mercia. He was having trouble with the Welsh, so he built a large ditch and embankment that ran right from the north of the border right to the south of the border, and no Welshman was meant to cross the, the boundary. So this was to keep those troublesome Welsh, Welsh on at a distance, land. yeah. It was worse land anyways than England, and he still had to... And that's one of the reasons why they tried to cross over oh, and steal I our see. cattle. so you had to keep them there. Today, I don't think you need Offa's Dyke anymore. No, we're all friends. That's good. But I... there is a footpath that runs. It's, it's actually the, the footpath, which again, was established some decades ago to allow people to walk the length of this, of this old embankment, of this a old boundary. Offa's Dyke, 
the historical division between England and Wales. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Roy Nichols about walking in England. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Julie is calling us from St. Paul, Minnesota. Julie, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. What's a, a thought on this uh, hiking in England? Well, um, for my 50th birthday, I was telling my husband and friends that I wanted to go up to Northumberland and follow the Hadrian's Wall Path. And as it turned out, six of our friends decided it sounded like a great idea, and they came along with us. And how was your experience? Fantastic. You, uh, you walked all the way across England from one coast to the yeah, other? We ended up staying near Halt Whistle, which was in the center of the wall, or sort of the most picturesque area. Uh-huh. And then um, embarked on foot or on bicycles from our cottages and walked both directions, basically from the center of the wall, about halfway each way. Nice. Roy, what's your uh, advice for somebody who wants to walk along Hadrian's Wall, that 1,800-year-old uh, wall the Romans built from coast to coast to define the north edge of the empire? Oh, it has to be one of the most romantic and dramatic walks in England. Um, it runs for something close to 80 miles, as, as we say, from the west to the east. It's actually a very relatively recent walk, last 10, 15, 20 years, something like that. And there's all sorts of systems to allow walkers to actually walk along the wall. There are shuttle services from various towns, usually confined to the summer months when most people are doing their walks. There are guides to the wall itself, telling you where there are places to stop for bed and breakfast and uh, transport facilities and all those sort of things. So it really does help the ordinary walker to make it possible. And you can punctuate the walk with quite impressive Roman attractions. Exactly, because, you know, some of the best preserved Roman remains in Britain. You've got the famous Roman forts of places like Housted and Chester's, but also civilian settlements at places like Vindolanda. And this wall was quite an engineering feat. They had it well figured out. What was the sort of big picture for this wall from a Roman engineer's point of view? Well, it was really um, really about the Emperor Hadrian, really in the early 2nd century, defining the boundaries of the Roman Empire. After centuries of expansion, he was defining the boundaries once and for all. They had like big castles and then every mile a little castle and you could take your uh, chariots along the top of the wall, is that right? Well, that's that's a popular misconception. It was actually only one for, for sort of walking along. Mm-hmm. But essentially you have a stone wall with the ditch to the north, a ditch and embankment and a road to the south. And it was really a great linear fortification to divide the north to the south, um, also acting as a customs post for people moving north and south, but also making sure that powerful tribes to the north and south didn't combine and thereby threaten the power of the Romans. So, Julie, when you were hiking Hadrian's Wall, what sort of evocative Roman kind of experiences did you uh, enjoy? Well, we happened to be there during the reign of the century. So we had rain every day, and we got to be outdoors walking along the wall and probably experiencing the cold and wind and rain that the Romans, I'm sure, didn't appreciate. That, to me, is quite an evocative thing to think of a Roman standing there on that wall in a driving rainstorm with a parka that was uh, technology from 1,800 years ago. Exactly. And what adds a particular poignancy to this is that we know from archaeological evidence that many of the soldiers came from places like Spain and some of the other Mediterranean countries. So imagine being posted to the furthest most uh, outpost of the Roman Empire. So, Julie, I do sympathize with your bad weather. But as you did say, you really are experiencing the weather that the Romans experienced 2,000 years ago. It amazed us that in our hometowns, none of us would go out and do any exploring in a rainstorm. But we didn't hesitate to uh, go as far as we could on any given day and get soaked and, and come back and have wonderful dinners together. It was, it was perfect. You cannot be a fair-weather walker in England. You've got to face the weather, get out there, and remember that there's uh, five or six different weathers in the course of one day. As Rick says, it's so changeable. And think of the joys of finishing your day's walking, changing a hot bath, a hot shower, a hot meal, and a pint of beer. What could be better? Not much. Uh, <laughs> not much. <laughs> Julie, thanks for your call. Thank you so much. You bet. Bye-bye. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're exploring England on foot with my friend Roy Nichols, who's been doing that all his life and for 30 years as a tour guide. Roy, I just want to cover a a few points about hiking in England and and enjoying the countryside very briefly and very quickly. First of all, you've got all these wonderful varieties of gates that let you cross from one man's property to the next. Yeah, there's there's whole different varieties and things. Styles is a very favorite one, which is a very simple system of having posts and a horizontal plank where you just step up onto the plank, cross over the fence, and down the other side. Uh, There are various gateways, some gateways built really for uh, riders to get through with bars to allow them to... The idea is to let humans get through but not the the farm. Exactly, that's right. To allow sort of passage along public footpaths without letting stock out. Isn't one of the gates designed for romance? 
Oh, you're talking about the famous kissing gate. That's right. This is like a little turnstile assembly whereby traditionally what would happen is the man would allow his girlfriend to go forward but keep the gate closed and then not allow her to pass through properly without giving him a kiss. A delightful way to cheer up a day with a little bit of a drizzle. What about the hedgerows? There's a lot of fascinating wildlife or just life in the hedgerows. Well, uh, many hedgerows date back thousands of years, particularly to times like the the Bronze Age, but most of the hedgerows you see in England today are a product of medieval times or of the 18th century during the enclosures period. They are essentially stock-proof fences to prevent stock from moving from field to field. But as you say, they are great refuges for wildlife. Uh, They are historical in their own right. Many of them go back as I say, centuries. And these are intimate angles on the on the English countryside that a, a walker, I would imagine a, an English walker, would be uh, well-versed to appreciate. Tell me about human wildlife, these Morris dancers. Uh, there was a great revival in the 19th century of English folk dancing. And it's said that the word Morris is said to be a corruption of Moorish, oh. the Moors from Spain, because this was folk dancing from pre-Christian times. And because they didn't really understand what pagan meant by this period, they thought it had to have been something foreign from abroad. So it's said to be Moorish dancing. Into this distant, distant past, and it's often so confused because it's just shrouded in the mist of the Dark Ages. For instance, you can be walking across Dartmoor and come to your own private stone circle like Stonehenge without any tourists in sight, and then later on you can come to a clapper bridge. I find these clapper bridges quite evocative. Clapper bridges, again, there are many of them across places like Exmoor and Dartmoor, They can date to medieval times, but they can even be much older than that. And essentially all they are are horizontal slabs of stone supported by columns of stones to allow access across rivers. I'm Rick Steves. We're speaking with Roy Nichols, who's an English tour guide who spent his lifetime enjoying the English countryside. Roy, of all the hiking you've done, take me and our American listeners to the most remote and exhilarating single place that you've enjoyed as a rambler in the English countryside. I've had so many good experiences over the years. But I think uh, for romance has to be going back to Offa's Dyke. The walk along Offa's Dyke in the counties of Herefordshire and Shropshire, some of the most beautiful in England. Just on the edge of Wales? Just on the edge of Wales. Why so beautiful? That's where I was born. (laughs) I knew there was an angle like that. Roy Nichols, thank you very much for sharing with us your passion for your own countryside. It's been my pleasure, Rick. Mid pleasures and palaces Though I may roam Is ever so humble There's no place like home Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Special thanks to Sarah McCormick for production help with today's show. There's more online in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, Visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.